this would fall maybe this under is the just, merger podcast. Yeah, the merger podcast where we just talk about you know everything related. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, figured it'd be I I figured it'd be a good conversation to have for a podcast. Um, yeah, constructability, maintainability, reliability, um, reliability, scalability. Oh my gosh! Wow, look at Mark go. Yeah, how many abilities can you come up with? <laughs> scalability well, it's a big deal it is sometimes you build something and it's for one specific purpose it'll never be expanded on when it's done you can throw it away well that's a whole different you know that's the that's the um i don't know you guys aren't old enough to remember you know the first rocket launches Till we find, and th- those things were all disposable until we came up with the space shuttle, and now we have SpaceX, and now we, you know, all that evolution, you know, was driven by what? By technology and by cost, right? Who wants yes. to build a rocket and throw it away? So, hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Jim De Pasquale, Nick Taliska, and Mark Sankey. In today's podcast, we will be discussing systems design constructability versus maintainability, and a last-minute add-on reliability. We could even talk about affordability if we want. There's a lot of different abilities in uh, systems design. So um, to bring it back, when designing a system, you know, to me, there has to be a balance that is struck between the two key things we're talking about today, constructability and maintainability. And obviously... There has to be both to some extent. And some situations, it's probably easier to have one versus the other. So I, I, I have to imagine you can't have both all of the time. And this actually is, a, I think, a pretty good add-on to our last BMS podcast, talking about uh, life cycle costs versus initial cost in systems design. And obviously, just the financial ability and owner requirements probably drive a lot of the decision-making and design regarding constructability and maintainability. If it's, you know, the size of the mechanical space you're giving, or if it's an existing facility, an operating facility, you know, what you're, what you're given when you start the design, if it's a completely clean slate or not, uh, plays probably a big role into this uh, constructability versus maintainability discussion. So I don't know, guys, we can dive right in. I don't know if you have any initial thoughts to get the podcast started regarding these topics. I do. Can, can something be maintainable if it's not constructible? Can something? <laughs> That's a great Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Did you just derail everything? No, I, but I think there are things, I think there are things that uh, potentially are not constructed, but still need to be maintained. Um, that may be part of the um, natural setting for a facility or, you know, simple things like, did you, did you construct your lawn? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but there are, you know, there are natural components that may surround a building that weren't part of the construction that still need to be maintained. Somebody builds a, a house in a wooded setting, still need to, cut the limbs back so they don't fall in your house. And, you know, those things are all part of the maintainability, but not part of the construction. Okay. Then talking about BMS related. You didn't qualify your statement. No, sorry. I figured you knew <laughs> where we were. Well, assume that at my age. <laughs> okay. Please Clayton continue. <laughs> Hell. Well, that was, it was a good point, Nick. And I don't know, BMS related, like, I guess I, I, you know, I'm looking at it more, actually more mechanical systems. I thought this was the merger podcast. Yeah. Talking about everything. This is true. Yeah. So if you're tuning in guys, this is kind of where we're bringing all of our podcasts together. Um, You know, our BMS, our energy, our commissioning podcast, as opposed to having three podcasts, we're going to just loop them all into one and sort of have the VS Energy uh, podcast, for instance, and bring all of our great discussions to one place for you guys. That is big news. It is big, big news. news. Yeah. Big news. Merry Christmas to everybody. Tuning in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now you only have to find us in one place. Um, 
but yeah, so we we we're kind of gearing this push and talking in this discussion. I think more about just uh, systems design, and even our last BMS podcast was sort of geared towards this in to, to some extent. But like I said, this one seems to be it's not a BMS podcast. It's not necessarily an energy podcast, and it's not necessarily a commissioning podcast. Although all of those things play um, a role in this discussion, I would say. True. So uh, in, in, from my perspective, what drives all of this is the owner's project requirement. Yes. If you're designing a, a typical office building and at one end of the spectrum and at the other end of the spectrum is a data center, you have a whole different set of requirements in terms of uptime, reliability, the need for you know how many levels of redundancy to be able to provide maintainability. So if you looked at the OPR for those two facilities and contrasts with them, you'd see a whole different um, definition of what the requirements were from one to the other. And that's what drives construction versus maintainability. And then you look at the dollars per square foot of each one of those, and you have a you know order of magnitude construction cost difference. Yeah, so then what do, if, if we may ask, what do we mean by constructability? Like it just just doesn't mean if it can be built or not. I think the ease of building um, more, you know, how quickly can this be built? How easily can it be built? And then when I say built, not necessarily like erecting a complete building from, you know, steel um, could be just, you know, you're, you're retrofitting a mechanical space and you know, you're doing new chillers new air handlers, whatever, your retrofit and air handlers, you know, anything like that saying, okay, um, is my design going to be easily installed? Can I easily place all my mechanical equipment? Um, once it's all placed, is some equipment going to be just buried in the back of a mechanical room behind a bunch of other stuff that some guy's never going to go to to grease the bearings because you know, it's really, don't even know it's there. Yeah. Right, right, right. But Jim Clayton and I were on a job not too long ago where there were, uh, VAB boxes in a ceiling that was dry, that drywalled over yeah. that, uh, they were, they were fan powered VABs that the filters hadn't been changed in 20 years. That is a perfect example. I would say, I mean, you, they might've, they thought nothing no about maintainability. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as designers and without, you know, and not, I don't necessarily want to drag in the architectural considerations because this would turn into a you know, bashing architects. <laughs> it could be whole separate podcast. Yeah. Whole separate podcast. Yeah. But the, the maintainability, especially for um, young engineers, make sure, you know, making sure that, yeah, this can be serviced. How can it be serviced? You know, understand the service requirements does it just take one hand to reach up and change a filter you need to you know get right next to the equipment and you know all of those things how much access how long you know is there confined space requirement or conditions that's a big deal yeah absolutely when i think of uh you know nick was asking what he what the how we defining constructability i guess a simple way um for me as a designer to think about it is whatever I'm drawing on this computer right now, how realistic is this, that this could get installed and constructed in real life? Like it's really easy for me to draw a duct or a pipe or put an air handler or a chiller, you know, on a piece of paper or on a computer screen, but what's it actually going to take to get it installed? If, is this chiller going on a rooftop penthouse, you know, 20 floors above grade? Is there, um, exterior access to get in there? Do I have to cut a hole in the roof? These are all real questions, you know, you have to be asking yourself as you're going through the initial design. And, you know, also part of it's going to come up, as Mark said, during the owner project requirements, you know, talk about what kind of constraints you're working with as well. So that's interesting, Jim. So then you've, you've got to balance constructability with the other constraints of the project. And I'm thinking mainly time and money. Right. I mean, and, you know, it's like that old Stephen Wright joke, you know, anything's in walking distance if you've got the mm -hmm. time. And it seemed the thing is constructability. I would think you could throw a lot of money at stuff and build anything. But 
the whole the, the, the VAV was the first one I thought with retrofit work, you know, it might be a great application, but if you don't have the ceiling space and other things like that, then, you know, it makes it kind of a, a non-constructible project to pursue, uh, let alone the maintenance side of it, but just the cost of it, getting in there, taking down ceilings, yeah. putting in new ceilings. Whatnot. Well, and, and I, I don't know if you guys have ever encountered it, but have you ever had an owner that has told you, we want a maintenance-free system? Oh, yeah, no. A maintenance-free system. I've had clients, like, mainly in the multifamily residential that don't, like, if you're in industrial or commercial markets, you typically have, you know, you'd like to see, like, a skilled mechanical staff, like, on-site, you know, building engineer, someone that's skilled in their full-time job is overseeing these systems. Um, but when you get into some smaller, you know, multifamily commercial, you know, if you're dealing with like, you know, water source heat pumps or VRF or smaller on magnitude between 50 and 150 tons around there, I, I've seen more systems that they're not, you know, nothing's maintenance free, but there's less, you know, you don't want those guys necessarily chilling out, right. changing out chiller tubes or, you know, they're not looking right. to do a lot of cooling tower maintenance. So we might try to minimize that, you know, try to design a system with, uh, you know, systems that are easier to maintain. I wouldn't call them maintenance free, but I would say less stringent on the, on the maintenance. Yeah. And it's usually, you know, as maintenance free yep. as possible in those scenarios. And, and I think there's a lot, no matter what market you're in, you know, there's a lot of facilities that they're whatever it's manpower, it's staff, it's expertise, but they don't have that to maintain yeah. these systems. Now, the paradox is that, you know, it seems like maybe the quality of, you know, all kinds of products may not be, uh, you know, following the same trend or keeping in line with that. You need better, you need good quality products if you're going to not be maintaining you know, systems like you may have been required to in a previous decade or two, but, you know, that's kind of the rub. Everything does require maintenance, so. So don't put cheap stuff in is what you're saying. Well, you know, and it's, I mean, how can you not put, you know, there's, you definitely can't put cheap stuff in, but, yeah, you know, what, you know, Mark, I mean, come on, what, you know, you know this because you were brought up to fix stuff. You know, what do you say all the time? Wear it out, fix it up, whatever. And use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Okay. So I guess that goes into the whole, you know, things aren't made to be repaired like they were. I think we can all understand. Uh, so I would potentially disagree with that. Um, I think that there is a predisposition and, and part of it is just from um, learned behavior that people don't pay attention to the things that need maintenance like they used to because of other time constraints or lack of interest or, I mean, I'm interested in most of the things that I drive, use on an everyday basis and, you know, take care of their, take, try and take care of my stuff. I mean, my, my oldest tractor is 1934. Um, you know, a, a gentleman that I spend a lot of time with has things and he's, 85 years old plus has things from when he was a 20 year old that he still uses, you know, his hand tools and things like that. I just don't think there's the same level of attention to, you know, the fundamental things that you need to um, pay attention to, to make them last a long time. I mean, I, I would agree I, too, but that quality of the materials, if the guy has something from 1950, it may have been made better back then. And maybe this isn't a discussion on product quality, but I, I do think that they go hand in hand because we we do have a disposable economy, culture, if you will, world, right? And that's, I, that's you know, you're going to maintain, we've had this discussion, I think, on weed whackers. Probably didn't make it on the air, and right then, so, but come on. You know, how much time are you going to spend maintaining your weed whacker? Are you going to go out and spend $100 every two years? Throw it out and get a new one. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And it's well, painful, and that's true. It wasn't raised that way. But 
you know, but I'm not keeping say, the weed whacker. I mean, my grandfather didn't even have a weed whacker, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But well, you could boil that down to, um, and I don't know necessarily if this is the case in like the the BMS or mechanical. Well, BMS maybe, but mechanical equipment world, like. I'm assuming the cost of a weed whacker today is a lot less than the cost of a weed whacker in the time period of we're going to maintain this till it, you know, completely no, pukes. The no? weed whacker from when I was a kid was a steel shaft with a blade affixed to the end of it that when it got dull, my dad would take a file out and sharpen it and then get back out there swinging that thing all day to chop the weeds down. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think it's like a, a sickle. It was, it, yeah. it was like a golf club shape it was not a sickle but but you know it's kind of a golf club with a, a cutting edge on it and so it cut both ways you know swing it forward swing it back swing it forward swing it back that's and beautiful like a, that's a beautiful tool right there. it's two right. in one yeah. <laughs> in a workout you're practicing your golf swing right. lawn. oh <laughs> so to bring it Yes, to, this is the time Clayton goes okay to get us out of the weeds yeah we're talking about weed whackers and it's time to get out of the weeds <laughs> but i see i see your point nick to the extent like i don't know this is a question for me to you guys then like um i think you might be saying more like on a maintainability standpoint too i think manufacturers might make it harder to maintain because uh i don't know i don't know if i'm allowed to like name manufacturers on probably not probably not but you're right because they don't want them to be maintained i mean correctly yeah doesn't make sense yeah they're gonna sell you this product at the price point you want, guess what? You're not going to be able to open it up and fix it. We'd rather you just replace yep. you know, this part, this component. Yep. yep. I'm not saying it's well, a big conspiracy. It, it, it's just how the world is going. So there is that changing yeah. of the maintenance you know, responsibility and how these teams look at it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff cannot be maintained like it used to be, and it's just meant to be used and then discarded. Well, and even the things that are meant to be maintained are all, uh, you know, factory tools are required, factory trained service technicians. There's a much higher level of complexity from my 1939 tractor to my, you know, 2018 tractor. You can't even, Uh, like a John Deere now, I mean, you're talking big equipment, you you can't even work on yourself. It's got to go to them, you know? It's got to go to them. That's right. So. How about adjusting the carburetor on your weed whacker? <laughs> no, you're going to need some special tools for that, my friend. Uh, that, that, yeah. Anywho. <laughs> where, where were we? Then you breathe on it wrong and it's out of whack again. But, uh, yeah. Is that what I did wrong? I knew yep. that. So, um, yeah, bringing it back to the podcast, although this is all relevant and interesting <laughs> topic of discussion, um, you know, we, we brought up the great point of the VAV um being you know installed in a ceiling and then just drywalled away for the rest of its life so you can never change a filter or do anything to it uh you know what what other equipment can that happen to or does that tend to happen to or have you seen that on facilities like i don't know like do you ever see chillers installed where you know we set it nice and easy but then you can't maintain the the chiller the, the, the tube. tubes yeah knocking down a wall yeah i mean does yep. i assume that happens right absolutely happens so we spent more time or no time thinking about maintainability and maybe more time thinking about constructability on that regard and maybe i don't know maybe you couldn't make it maintainable but i would assume if you put any thought into it you would say we have to have this be maintainable if you want it to last yeah, i mean i i don't really look at it as a as a balance, you mean you you have to provide, in my opinion, the ability to construct and maintain the equipment. You know, I maybe there's a spectrum. Right. Like you, there's a minimum. Like you have to provide a minimum. Yeah. Like if you look at the equipment cut sheets and data sheets, they'll give you minimum clearances for control panels, tube mm-hmm. poles, filter poles, and whatever there is minimum space um, to maintain equipment. You know, and then beyond that, you know, in talking with owners and operators, they may have further um, requirements uh, because they're used to working on it. They know how they work on it and they may want, you know, maybe right. overhead cranes in this area. They want more room in this area. They want it arranged like this. Right. Um, so I think of it more of a, as a spectrum, not necessarily a, a, a balance, because if, if you knowingly install equipment without the ability to maintain it, I think you're doing a great disservice to the owners, you know, that these things 
a lot of the major HVAC equipment has service life over well over 20 years, but you're not going to hit that if you're not able to properly do the um, scheduled maintenance on it. I would well, completely. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and like I said, I, you know, brought up the chillers one. I don't know if there's any other specific examples you want to talk about. Like I said, uh, just to be able to get to, uh, you know, a pump or, uh, you know, any type of bearing on anything to be able to grease it. If it's hidden away and you got to crawl over and under a bunch of piping and stuff to get there and it may not happen so much. So makes a difference. And I assume that's thought that has to be put into the, the layout to some extent. Well, it's interesting, Clayton, because I think when we started talking about this, that this has to happen more in retrofit work, but maybe... I'm kind of wondering now, I guess you could have the same issues with, with brand new construction, right? You're all competing for, for footprint and space and all that. Yeah. And you do need to make some decisions. Like yeah, we're, so, uh, we're working, you know, at a facility right now, it's a brand new mechanical space and it, I, I don't know, Mark, you can add on to this, but we've, there's been a lot of compliments from, um, you know, mechanically inclined people that said wow this is laid out great look at all the space you can get around every piece of equipment and access everything and everything's labeled and so on and so forth which makes it so much easier to maintain oh at least give you a, a good start you know yeah well so that that leads into what exactly my next point was going to be this is a hundred percent uptime facility so when you look at let's take an, as an example, a natural gas compressor station. Mm -hmm. So they usually have N plus two or three redundancy mm -hmm. and they run large scale recip motors to drive compressors, natural gas compressors. And the building is built around the compressors with a gantry crane over it. So that if any one of those hiccups, they can, you know, swing the gantry, you know, slide the gantry crane yeah. down, pull cylinder heads off, basically Ooh. rebuild it in place in a matter of a relatively short time frame because of that 100% uptime requirement. So if that building didn't have access, if it didn't have good labeling, if it didn't have good records on site, if it didn't have all those things, it would be impossible to maintain mm -hmm. that 100% uptime. Yeah. It's purely designed around maintainability. That's right. Yeah, so an yeah. owner in that situation yeah. would see a lot of value in having that extra space and, you know, stressing and, you know, having um, a lot of import, importance emphasized on maintainability and, and upkeep, whereas maybe right. another owner just sees they just want the bare minimum because that's that space costs someone a lot of money. And yeah, well, take take that and put it in a in the yeah. lease space, and all that space exactly. is lost revenue if it's not occupied. <laughs> there uh, you go. That's the cranes are the minimum. <laughs> So you got the two ends of the spectrum there pretty much we just covered. But I think it's cool that it illustrates, I mean, just how the importance of forethought, you know, yes. in whatever we do, you know, you just got to kind of think to the next part. And then you, know, you would never have that set up if somebody didn't think or somebody before that didn't think, what if, mm -hmm. you know, what do we do? And then how long does it take? And something can be maintainable, maintainable but I would think a factor in that is also I don't know how much time, you know, like, oh, we can, we can change that filter, but this wing needs to be shut down for a week when that happens. Well, that's not a good solution. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's a very, and I guess point. that brings up another really good point in maintainability is, you know, when we talk about maintainability, a lot of the discussions been around like space and clearances and the ability to work on things, mm -hmm. but Nick, you know, brought up, you know, the ability of isolating the system and the ability to shut down without affecting, you know, the rest of the system. And, you know, that's some kind of basic design 101 is any major equipment you put in, you want to make sure you have isolation valves or dampers. Um, yep. In the ability, like in, in pipe, you know, if it's, you're, if you're talking about piping devices and equipment, you know, do you have unions or flange connections, valves, like you want to keep all that in mind so that you're able to, you know, disconnect and pull out a pump or a chiller, take something out of service without having significant, you know, effect on the rest of the system. That's a huge point. Yeah. Isolation of the other parts. 
yeah, never really did think about it like that, but that's probably a lot more, uh, I guess, an issue than changing an air filter necessarily, you know? And it's probably something that easily overlooked. I don't know if it's often overlooked, but. Definitely seen it in the pumps and mechanical rooms, you know, quite yeah. a bit, you know, where things weren't isolated. So you have to replace a pump and yeah, it's a major undertaking. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, we sh- probably should have done this. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't right. see it. I mean, I've seen it on equipment, you know, whatever it happens. That's a pretty oh. standard practice, I think, where you're, you're designing with the ability to isolate equipment. I think what's more common is if you're out at terminal devices away from the mechanical room and you have to isolate something, um, like if you have to maybe add in, maybe you want to tap in, a new connection on a, a floor or a certain area. And then you look back and like, well, we have to drain like half the building now because there's, you know, our closest <laughs> yeah. way to isolate this branch or line over here doesn't exist. We have to go you know, way back to the mechanical room or mm-hmm. wherever. And that type of isolation I see sometimes lagging. Um, Interesting. Okay. So that's something you particularly look for, Jim, then when you're doing your work yeah i just try to keep that in mind i mean you're, you're always balancing cost versus you know the value yes. and if something you know, especially smaller size valves that's a relatively very small cost that could could save a significant amount of money and save you a lot of headaches in the future well especially being in upstate new york if you've ever been involved when a school building has a loss of heat in the winter and the associated freeze-ups, there might be one, five, 10, 30, 50, and try and isolate. Number mm. one, there may or may not be valves. Number two, after a succession of maintenance people, they may or may not know where the isolation is located. Mm-hmm. If it's even there, I mean, it, it is a, a yeah. debacle. Even even one small freeze up, especially um, you know when there's uh, automated makeup water attached to it, can turn into a real mm-hmm. disaster. Yeah, that's interesting, and you know, bringing it to the the conversation or the the topic of the podcast, like you know, when you think of adding a valve, that doesn't really um, make it harder to construct. Even yeah, it takes you know, depending on the valve size and whatever, a little bit more time, but. You know, that's like a purely maintainability outlook. Like this doesn't cost, like Jim said, a lot more or it doesn't make it harder to build necessarily. You just got to, you know, have the forethought for it to go in. I mean, right. even, you know, we saw it uh, this week, Mark, tying into a natural gas line to add a little heater was a complete shutdown because there was no isolation <laughs> to any of the... You know, to keep any of the equipment on and it still tie into the gas line. So you had to shut the whole gas main down, drain it all, um, tie in and then restart, which took whatever, four hours, five hours, where it could have been a, you know, zero impact addition if somebody said, let's put isolation, whatever, here, here, so we can have that. Even to have half of the equipment running still would have been. Right. So, Yeah. It's it, interesting. Yeah, and it, like I said, it doesn't add much to the constructability standpoint, but it's a purely maintainability outlook, I suppose. Doesn't add much to the cost. I don't know. <laughs> what on the other end of the spectrum, though, guys? Like what? Like what are like Jim? You kind of alluded to it in the discussion on the constructability part. Like, okay, I need to put a chiller in this, you know, penthouse. How do I get it there? What What are my options? I mean, like. Any other examples worth discussing for different types of equipment on the constructability standpoint that, you know, looking on my CAD drawing, this all fits great. Everybody's happy. And then you give the prints to the builder and they're like, we can't do that. I don't know. I don't have any specific examples necessarily, but again, I have to assume it it happens or it can happen. Yeah, I guess like, you know, we were talking about a chiller up on a roof, but the same thing could happen with you know, a boiler uh, at grade level or below grade level, um, you know, how am I going to get that in there? Do, do I, are there double doors somewhere? Like, or, you know, how, right. how is this going to happen? And a lot of times these days, um, depending on 
your application and your project, you see a lot of smaller modular condensing boilers, which kind of makes that a lot yes. easier. Now you you could wheel mm -hmm. a bunch of those things through, you know, your typical single man door and, you know, not have an issue. But if you're in an industrial plant and you're dealing with steam, you know, it just, you have to kind of think through it. All right. How, where's this going to be delivered? How, how am I going to get this in one piece? You know, if that's how it needs to be to where it mm -hmm. ultimately has to go. And, you know, is that, I just think installation pathway, like what is the pathway? Yep. How is it going to get there? What does that take? Um, and then that would lead into when we're talking about bigger equipment, um, you know, we go into maintainability. Then I start thinking, especially with the bigger stuff, do I want cranes in here? Like how, what's the overhead? Mm -hmm. Like what, what, how are they going to maintain it? If I have a big chiller with big compressors on top, you know, or um, if I have a, CHP plant where I have prime, you know, internal combustion uh, engine driven generators and they have to pull the heads or um, similar to a chiller. Maybe there might be a cam pole clearance to pull the cam. Yep. You know, these are all things you have to be thinking about early in design because it, it could, like I said, if you know, you're the owner's expecting you to get, you know, 20, 25, 30 years out of a certain piece of equipment. And then you're not able to maintain it or, you know, you go to maintain it and then there's significant costs due to building modifications or just different methods that end up being very costly and more time consuming. You know, that's a bad day. Hmm. So I would think with constructability then, Jim and Mark and Clayton, is it, is it, uh, do you put any emphasis on the deconstructability of what's in its place? You know, obviously for retrofit work. And I'm thinking back years ago to some really smart boiler retrofits I thought of, but then I was informed that it was very difficult to get the old boilers out. It couldn't, not that it couldn't be done, but it made the economics really not scream as loudly as we had hoped, right? Because we had to get the old boilers out and that knocking down a wall and I'm dealing with what was outside. Uh, I don't imagine. But that's what a that's what an acetylene torch is for. <laughs> How hard is it to cut stuff up? Now, if Takes there's time. hazmat, if there's asbestos or anything like that, that's a different issue. But uh, I don't know. I've seen some stuff come apart in pieces in a hurry, you know, with the right team. But it, yeah, you're right. It takes time. It, it, it uh, you know, it's invasive. If they're trying to do it while the heating season is in full stead, that's a that's a problem. But I don't know. Demolition, in my mind, is usually a lesser problem. Than, Torch it out. Yep. Get the fire. <laughs> well, that's what that's what I was kind of happen. thinking. Like when when you're designing, you're you know you're obviously looking at constructability. You're looking at maintainability, but rarely are you looking, especially with assets with 20, 25 year life cycles. I mean, is salvage operations really a big factor that goes into it? Is that part of constructability? I wouldn't think so, but like Mark said, that's so far down the line. Yeah, but I guess you could, you know, I don't, to some extent it goes hand in hand with maintainability um, to some extent. I guess it depends on the life cycle. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, top, uh, unit. well, I think a lot of that's going to depend on like the, the building sequencing, because generally if you're able to install it, you know, if there's a way for you to install it, there should be a way for you to take the stuff out unless someone's coming after and put a bunch of stuff in the way. Or if, for example, you're putting chillers on a rooftop penthouse before the roof goes on, and then you put them in jail and put a roof around it. Yes. Right? Well, uh Jim, I don't know. Were you involved in the, the the square project where the chillers were in the basement and there was no way to get them out? They were, uh, I believe, it was three six hundred ton carriers, and the building was built around the. They were actually in the sub basement um, in Rochester, and they ended up cutting them out and doing basically what we did at the airport and taking in uh, uh, turbo mm -hmm. cores in pieces to replace them. No, I wasn't involved with that one, but, you know, I, I 
I've, I've seen and heard a lot of similar stories to where, you know, it all makes sense. It's easy. You, know, you have all this great plan installing everything. And then, you know, someone else comes along and puts everything in jail. They're just not, you know, it just gets missed along so, the way. They, they did last 30 years, which was good. Yeah. But, you know, that 30 year, 30 years comes along faster than yeah. you might imagine. So here's a question then, like, you know, we often hear that story today um, about stuff installed 30 years ago or whatever, you know, in 30 years from now with today's equipment and designers and what have you, do you think there will still often be the same situation? I have to imagine not. So like, I don't know. It always seems like I, you come to that realization of the older stuff, equipment in facilities Maybe that's because that's what you know I'm looking at and dealing with now. But like in 30 years, yeah. is somebody going to say, "Man, why did they put that chiller in that basement?" Because now I got to cut it up and drag it out. Or do you think the design and the equipment size is so much smaller with you know efficiencies and all of that good stuff to make it easier to remove things? Like a, con- a condensing boiler, excuse me obviously going to be a lot easier to get out, you know, in 30 years when it poops the bed and they want to put something newer and better in compared to the boiler that the mechanical room was built around. Nick, you're our resident futurist. I'm expecting a big answer on this one. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Did I just get promoted? (laughs) Wow. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, The answer is no. (laughs) <laughs> no, sure. no, it's, 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 no. It's I thought you would say though, because you're right, Clayton. I've seen a, a lot of those those type of installations too, where literally the building was built yeah. around it just because it's old and you know yep. whatever. And that's that's what they did it. back then. And, uh, yeah, I'm not passing right. judgment on it. That's what no. they had to do to get a boiler plant and have a school to educate the children. It's fine. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. The only thing that would think maybe it would be an issue is maybe if we if we continue to do a process that was done before and the equipment does not last as long then the guy who figured well it'll be 30 years before they have to deal with this and i'll be gone and i'm a yacht but he's yeah. still there because stuff doesn't last as long and it wasn't maintained and then they have to deal with that but i don't know everything seems more modular i mean yeah that is the way of the world as much yep. as we always expand and we get bigger and trees get bigger but these uh contrived systems we have i mean everything's getting more modular plug and play interchangeable so i think if anything the trend is probably going in a good direction i would agree Uh, see i I, honestly nick i thought you were going to say in 30 years everyone will have their own personal environment garments no central heating and cooling will be required I, i really thought you'd go someplace like that I thought we were only talking like 20 years in the future, Mark. Oh, I don't okay. think you want to go 30 because that happened well, for 30 years. Yeah, like to, yeah, in 30 years, they'll be dealing with our technology of today. I mean, in 30 years, right. they may be ready to install that stuff, but they got to rip all our crap out, you know? Right. Or they could just be like, why'd they build all these buildings? Yeah. <laughs> well, that too. When they're ready to put in their absorption chillers. There you go. They're going to be like, well, how do, you know, who thought of this? Why did they stuff all this equipment down in here? got to cut it up now nick something i've seen recently on a job site was i was up on a a high-rise building that just had uh new chillers put in and this was the most cramped smallest mechanical room uh chiller room that i've i've been in with that amount of chiller it was about 750 tons from coming from two chillers and and how located you said they were yeah, it was like a, the a 28 floor okay. high rise. And, mm. you know, you typically think a chiller, you think long, long two bundles. Like it's usually the dimensions, it's a long cylinder. Um, these chillers had very short cylinders. They were almost, the diameter was almost more than the length. They were very short and fat. Mm. They had, huh. you know, yeah. small, they had multiple small, um, magnetic bearing compressors on them. So that's kind of what you're alluding to the newer, that's all newer technology, especially with the compressors. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, something you might not have seen 
you know, not too long ago that, totally. you know, all of a sudden now their two pole is only a few feet versus, you know, 30 feet or 20 feet. You know, it's literally like five feet. Hmm. Very yeah. interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that is. And these are, are more modular chillers then? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a completely custom chiller, you know, because, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you do a custom application, you could do all kinds of different things. But, you know, it was definitely not typical. You know, typically, you're seeing those longer two bundles. Um, but this had, you know, they each had duplex smaller, those high-pressure, high high-speed compressors that are much smaller than some of the older, giant, low-pressure uh you know, oil bearing machines and had the different dimensions on the tube bundle to where your tubes are much shorter. And now you're able to fit a lot of chiller in a relatively small uh, yeah. you know, square shaped space because you don't have that long tube pull anymore. So well, what seems like definitely geared towards maintainability yep. there too. Well, I was just going to ask that like, um, or was that, was that choice I think it's both. Oh, it's both. Yeah. 28 floors up. You're right. You know what I mean? Like some of that yeah. stuff. But was that a new facility too? Like what no, was, was in there before? Yeah. Really? So like, nice. did they have some big old whatever, you know, um, centrifugal absorber? Huge comp- oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, you know, they've, in that case, they ended up reducing the mechanical space you know, a data center was put in nearby. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. Like just when I was, when you were saying that, I was like, I was like, wow, that's really smart of somebody to, to say, let's put that in there for future. But I was like, they had to put that in there. No, that was out of abs- that was like, absolute they, need. <laughs> Immediate yeah, to need, get yeah. there and fit there. But it's, I don't know. It's, I guess, constructability and maintainability could go hand in hand too. Yep. But that well, kind of like we started, I don't think you can have the, the second one without the first one. Yes. So maybe yep. that would be like the decision there, you know, like, well, we need to get them up on the roof first. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's make them small and blah, blah, blah. And, yep. You know, oh, extra bonus. You don't have to hang off the side of the building to change the tubes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it, that's the word balance is kind of, you know, appropriate, but. You know, you're not necessarily sacrificing one for the other, but maybe sometimes you have to make those decisions. It's and obviously, difficult to maintain, but we can build it. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I uh, like in the that case that Jim mentioned, or you know, for a lot of this more technologically advanced equipment, if you would say, though, you are paying a premium for it. Yeah, so. and that's I guess where the balance comes in. Like you mentioned, balance uh, earlier, yep. and that's. You know, if I have to pay more of a premium for maybe some customization on the equipment, but now I don't have to, you know, add on to the building or, you know, yep. make significant structural or architectural changes to the building, it's probably worth, you know, it may be worth it. So, so okay, uh, I have a question for you guys. So, okay, we're talking about reliability, operability, and maintainability, and I'm going to throw efficiency into. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, you you have to. Figure out who I'm talking about. Extremely efficient, probably one of the most efficient uh, technologies ever put on the planet. 100% reliability, almost zero carbon footprint. There is no record of any missed deadlines and it's very old technology. What mechanism am I talking about given the time of year that we're at? What? It's the most complicated riddle I've had all day. Nuclear. Hydro. Nick? Also, I'm guessing that from the answers, I should go with some kind of <laughs> power generation. I guess so. <laughs> Santa's oh, sleigh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Merry Christmas. Love it. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, that's good. That is good. Did you say 100% efficient? I said 100% reliability. Oh, true. <laughs> Runs on the Christmas spirit. That was good. The That's Christmas right. spirit. The oh. Christmas spirit is alive and well in this podcast, too. Everybody's in it. Yep. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay. Nuclear. <laughs> nuclear. <laughs> I'd even well, guess. I feel like I, the smart one. 
is nuclear. I like that. I like that. Was- Santa's got his little. He puts a little piece of uranium in his sleigh, and uh, no, I don't think so. away he goes. Puts some alfalfa in. <laughs> so why do you think he runs on the North Pole? Hydro. That's a good one too. Actually, I would explain though. it. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think? Do we want to keep keep expanding on this discussion? Wrap it up. We're about an hour. I think it was a great conversation if we keep it going or not. I think we covered I think we're okay. A lot of I, I enjoyed it. I think it was very informative. Okay, so too. Changed my mind on a couple things. Last um like parting uh statements or thoughts, I guess. Um you know, as like Nick, Jim and Mark, where if you had to put yourself, you know, on the spectrum, if constructability is on the left, right, and maintainability is on the far right. Where do you guys land? If that's a good question, uh, I don't know oh, if right. there's like a necessarily a trade-off there. You can't, like, you can't pinpoint. A lot of times yeah. they'll they'll go. Maybe I'm not understanding your question because I, th- I feel like a lot of times they go hand in hand. Like, if- I think you're right. I think in and from this podcast, I think before we talk through all of this, I might have not thought that so much, but. I think, you know, throughout the discussion, yes, they definitely do go hand in hand. So maybe we can't, you can't put a spot on where you fall. I don't know. Well, I, I think it all depends on your time horizon that mm-hmm. you look at. Yeah. With. So if there, let's just look at it now. If you look at any commercial building, their time horizon is shrunk to a life, lifespan of yep. 20 years. They're uh-huh. saying, we build buildings that last 20 years. Okay, well, if you would have told, um, you know, somebody that back in the uh, 1800s, my house was built in 1852. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was built yeah. to last. Yeah, and yeah, a whole different construction yep. mindset for, you know, that level of construction. And, and I, I adopt that in most things. So when I say, okay, uh, what's the life cycle cost of this? It becomes a whole different calculation when you change your life cycle from 20 year analysis to 40 year analysis. Um, and assuming that you can do maintenance for that period and keep, you know, the building envelope, the roof, uh, roof replacements, not a capital improvement. That's an expense. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things you have to do it. Pick a, pick a year. I do it every 30 years or whatever it is, or I put metal roof on mm-hmm. because the, the life cycle is longer. So, uh, it, it all comes down to the mindset, the requirements, the life cycle evaluation of the owner. But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely at the far end of the spectrum where I want to be able to do maintenance. I want the building to last a long time. And if it costs a little more to construct, I'm usually willing to pay a reasonable amount to make that happen. Yeah, I, I like the answer. That's was some, that is exactly what I was like hoping to hear. Something like that. I mean, okay. yeah. I agree. I do you, Nick or Jim, do no, you, do you agree? Totally. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. And that when, when we bring in life cycle, um, you know, I guess, in, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'd put it under constructability. I, I start to think about like system type selection, you know, if, if, if someone, if an owner has right. a longer time preference, you know, maybe I'm more, likely to go with a central system that will last longer, be more efficient and have, right. you know, uh, higher efficiency and but require more maintenance. But a lot of owners have a very short time horizon, especially, you know, commercial, uh, like office spaces, as Mark said, and some with like 20 right. year time horizons, a lot of those guys just want, you know, packaged decentralized systems. Yeah. They'll rip it out. Yep. New tenant right. moves in, or they're re- reconfiguring a space. You know, they'll move stuff around, get rid of yep. it, install new. I mean, that's very common in the commercial space. Yeah, sometimes capital funds are quite different than operating funds. You know, Absolutely. easier to get. So, yep, you so, could see those so, decisions being made too. Like, well, yep. I've got the money to maintain it, so, and but I can't afford the really good stuff. That means I don't have to maintain it as much. So, I guess there is a very individual choice and nick getting into you know you do so much with in the esco world when you do you ever 
scratch your head when you see people sign 30 year contracts for a building that I don't know if it'll last that long. Or oh, equipment, yeah. maybe. No, I yeah. mean, yeah, equipment and systems and right. No, agreed. Financing, you know, yeah. light bulbs for 24 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you bet you had a little bit. Yeah. 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 But again, it's but it all you can pick apart anything, you know, and yep. say this doesn't right. make any sense. It is the whole package and the kind of stuff we're talking about. You know, it's definitely, you know, more of a holistic look you have to take at it and a lot of a lot of different factors and influences. I but like the world it. Is better off now that we have this podcast explaining it all. I think it is. I, I mean, I learn a lot when we go through these podcasts and talk and listen to you guys as well. So I, hopefully our listeners enjoy it and uh, are learning or at least agreeing or maybe disagreeing. I don't know what we're saying. We're just but. challenging their own thoughts. I knew I, I did that a lot today. I, yeah. I learned some things that kind of made me say, hmm. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was everything you said, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, guys. Well, uh, thick. <laughs> to our listeners, I think this will probably be episode one of the new podcast. And probably you might hear it in two places, maybe the last episode of the BMS podcast. So this could be the transitional one. Um, with that being said, our next discussion in this podcast is going to be about mechanical systems redundancy. So um, I think that'll be another fun one. Could learn something. Maybe you have a different outlook on things at the end of that one. So... Thanks for tuning in today and looking forward to having you guys tune into our next podcast. And for more information on us, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us, www.appliedfacilitiescience.com, and www.deepasquale-eng.com. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day.